This is Profiles in Risk. Hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation, and those who work behind the scenes who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot com. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Profiles in Risk. I am your host, Nick Lamparelli. On today's episode, I will be speaking with Chelsea Thorpe. Chelsea is a senior underwriter of foreign casualty at AIG based in Philadelphia. Chelsea, how are you? Doing well, Nick. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, we met at a meetup in Philadelphia, and what struck me and why I wanted to get you on the show was, one, you have quite a bit of experience in insurance. You've you actually built a career. Um, you knew uh, from a very early stage that you were going to get insur- into insurance. And uh, you had such enthusiasm for what you do, which is uh, perfect for the audience that we have. A lot of young professionals coming in don't understand insurance. And so they look at it as either unethical or boring. And I think in both cases, you can, you can really highlight a career where both of those are, are not true. So could you describe what is foreign casualty? Sure. So foreign casualty is basically insurance coverage for things that occur outside the U.S. So basically what I do is insure U.S.-based companies that either travel abroad, sell products abroad, have locations or employees abroad, or any combination of those. And I insure them as a full package for their general liability, auto liability, work comp and EL, their property their kidnap and extortion risk, as well as other lines like in marine cargo or political risk. So how does one develop an expertise in foreign casualty? So it's, that seems, it seems really complicated. There are a lot of exposures there. So could you walk us through a little bit of how, how you got into it and how you developed expertise in it? Sure. Uh, I'm actually one of those weirdos who chose a career in international risk management and insurance rather than just falling into it like a lot of insurance professionals. Uh, I went to Temple University and got my degree in actuarial science, realized that I would not cut it as an actuary. I was uh, too social and I could not take the exams for the life of me. So I kind of knew towards the end of college that I wanted to study and and move more into underwriting. Um, I ended up staying an extra semester to take a few extra insurance classes once I realized this, even though I was still going to get my actuarial degree. One of those classes was international risk management insurance, which Temple offered. It was really interesting. It went into all the different markets throughout the world and how they vary, how your exposures vary uh, by country. And it was something I was really interested in. I actually didn't know that it was a career option too much, but then uh, one of my mentors from ACE actually called me and said, I want you to meet this guy, Rick, who's the head of international here in Philly. I thought I was just going to try and convince him to recruit from Temple, so it was very casual. I didn't wear a suit. I didn't bring a resume. Uh, We were just chatting, and we talked about international and what they do and how ACE at the time writes risks 
overseas. And 15 minutes after the meeting, they called and made me a job offer. So I kind of fell into it. Um, loved it from the first minute, though. Uh, really interesting. The, the great thing about international is it's something different every day. One day I'm working on you know, a, a school group studying abroad in France. The next I'm doing military contractors in Afghanistan. The next day missionaries in Haiti and manufacturing in Brazil. And you really get to do a little bit of everything. No two days are the same. So, but it's complicated, right? So here you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tricky, but so, it's it's fun. Um, the nice thing about what I do is you're not just focused on one type of insurance. So a lot of underwriters, they go into, I'm a property under underwriter. All I do all day is property. Uh, I do a little bit of everything. So it's nice that you get to kind of touch all aspects of the property and casualty insurance. The one thing I don't do is any uh, professional liability or, or anything like that. So you kind of know a little bit about a lot. And it's great for a career path because even if you don't stay in international, now that you've had exposure to all those different lines of insurance, you can see what you like, what you didn't like, and you also have that experience that you can parlay into careers in different lines of insurance. So do you work primarily with brokers? I do. Um, all I work with is brokers. We do nothing direct. So most of my work is done with retail brokers who are working direct with the client. I do have some wholesalers who I work with, and it's really only a select few who, number one, have a contract with AIG, of course, and uh, to really see that foreign stuff from time to time. And that's really the big houses. So uh, how, when, when a broker sends a submission to you, how do you start to break it down? What are the things that you're initially looking for? Because again, I, what, I, what amazes me about what it is that you do is that, as you mentioned, there are underwriters that do nothing but auto or nothing but property. This has exposures in many different facets. So when, when an account comes to you, what are you looking for? How, how do you break it down? I kind of try and take a look at it by underwriting line. So I'll take a look at the GL and I'll see, okay, what are we going to rate on? Are we rating on foreign sales if they've got a lot of, let's say it's a manufacturer that does a lot of exports? Or are we rating on trip travel if, say, it's a school that does a lot of quick trips overseas? So I take a look at what our exposure is by line. And then autos, for example, I take a look at how many rent, rented or owned autos they have. For comp, I'm taking a look at if they have overseas employees. Do they have you know, local nationals in those countries that they're hiring, or are they just sending U.S. people over for quick trips? I take a look at how many properties they have overseas, what are the values, if they're very large, what kind of protections and COPE data do we have? Like, are they sprinklered? Are they good construction? Um, for kidnap and extortion, I'm looking at what countries are they traveling to? Are they high-risk countries? Are they uh, having large groups of people travel together, for example, on a plane that could go down or a group that could be kidnapped for high ransom. So I kind of take a look at each line of coverage and dig through the exposure info I have to try and build a, put the puzzle together and build a nice picture of what the risk really is. So I'm thinking of, you had mentioned kidnapping and, you know, for the life of me, I, I'm not sure how that gets even rated you know, like there uh, are there databases that um, have information about, you know, which countries are more dangerous than others. And, um, you know, how can you walk us through this, this is a profiles and risk podcast. So what is what is the risk? How how do you uh, communicate that back to the broker via a premium? Sure. So. 
for our policy, I actually throw in coverage for basically for free for most countries in the world. AIG is unique in that we don't exclude any countries on our kidnap and ransom form, whereas some of our competitors have a huge list of exclusions, which includes everywhere you actually need coverage, like uh, Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, all of the tr tricky places. Um, so I include coverage automatically for 250000 in limits. Uh, if they're going somewhere trickier and they need higher limits, for example, a million, it's typically rated based on the number of worldwide employees and the worldwide revenues, because that's kind of where they're going to calculate how much you have to pay in ransom, basically. Uh, so we do have lots of different reports based on the country. AIG has a proprietary, uh, wholly owned subsidiary called TravelGuard which is our company that does medical and security evacuations, political evacuations. They've got tons of info. I can run a report on any country in the world and it ranks their risk for lots of things, not just kidnapping, for, for crime, for political upheaval, for medical issues from very low all the way to extreme. So if you take a look at any country in the world, I can tell you what's your risk of kidnapping. Of course, the worst are Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly uh, Colombia, Mexico, Brazil are no picnic. Haiti's not great. There's a few tough African countries there um, due to some of the terrorist groups down there. So we kind of look at what country they're in, um, how many worldwide employees they have, because kidnap does apply worldwide. And we take a look at what their revenues are like, and we've just got some rates that we build from there. So how does the claims process work? If, well, um, if, you know, <laughs> let's say someone is going to Haiti or somewhere in South America and there is a kidnapping, uh, what's the, it's not a traditional claims process, is it? No, uh, it's very secretive. So when I actually bind a policy, the first thing I say is do not tell people you have kidnap insurance. Uh, the first thing, the only people who should know you have kidnap insurance are really the risk manager. Because if anything happens to any employees overseas, they're supposed to call you and then you can tell them, yes, we have kidnap insurance. So if you're walking down the streets of Colombia and you get kidnapped and they see kidnap insurance ID card in your wallet, oh, you better, gonna, you better believe they're going to ask for $5 million in ransom instead of $1 million because they think, oh, these guys have money. They've got premiums to pay this. So the way the claim process happens is they call into us. We take a look at what type of kidnapping it is. So you're, what you view as the typical kidnapping where you're held in a warehouse tied up and gagged and they ask for ransom and you're held there for days. That's kind of, it still happens, but it's going more to the wayside. What we're seeing a lot of is what we call express kidnapping, where they're kidnapping you and they're bringing you to a bunch of ATMs throughout the city and withdrawing money. And once you run out of money or you get blocked, you know, they'll probably beat you up and then they'll leave you on the side of the street. Versus the old style where it was a long process, they had to you know, hide you from the government, tie you up. So the good news is that express kidnappings tend to be a little quicker, although no less traumatic. Um, so the first thing we take a look at is what type of kidnapping it is, if it's going to be said and done before we're, we can even get someone on the ground, or if we need to send in uh, our contracted forces. Um, a lot of the people we employ are former CIA, they're former MI5, and if they need to bring in consultants to negotiate a ransom, to negotiate extraction, to get you out of wherever you are, then we kind of take that on a case-by-case -case basis. Do uh, For like extraction and all of the services that are provided, is that included in the limit or is that above and beyond? Yeah, we do have um, sublimits. So 
there's 250,000 per limit and there's different types of limits. So there's a limit for ransom, there's a limit for consultant fees, there's a limit for extraction, and all of those can add up to 1.25 million per occurrence. That's what we'll pay. So, um, you know, the consultant fees could be 100,000 and then it could be 50,000 for your ransom and it could be, you know, a cost of 100,000 while we extract you and all of that would be included at no cost to the insured. Well, I will say that the insured has to pay the ransom, the company first, and we will reimburse them. We can't obviously pay money to a terrorist group as an insurance company. So how does it work with the, uh, with the U.S. government? If, um, I'm assuming they would have to get involved at some point. Yes. Um, our claims people and our uh, travel guard security team does involve whoever needs to be involved, the U.S. government, the FBI, uh, what have you, during the process. Uh, I don't have too many details on that because it is very classified. Most of the time, I don't even know when a kidnapping occurs. That's how classified it is. So this is just what I know from uh, speaking with our team in Travel Guard. What's the, what's the toughest part of your job? Hmm, the toughest part is really a lot of times when you're working on these risks in a lot of these foreign, less developed countries, you really just don't know what they're doing over there. You know, they, they're, what they're telling us here in the U.S. is, oh, we're an aid company. We are helping the underprivileged in these countries. But when you really think about it, some of the very underdeveloped African nations, they've got, they're in the bush. They've got no medical facilities. They've got no good housing. They're tons of disease, tons of waterborne illness. So these people are going into the worst of the worst areas and we're just kind of uh, crossing our fingers and hoping that they come out all right. And uh, if they don't, then luckily we're there to, to help save them. So it's really kind of dealing with the unique insurance environment in each country. Some are far more developed, for example, the UK and Ireland closely mirror the United States in terms of coverages, in terms of uh, litigious environments, but then you go to less developed Eastern European countries or African countries where the insurance market is nearly non-existent. So it's a bit of a challenge kind of covering everyone uh, universally across all those different countries and jurisdictions. So your, your enthusiasm really spills over. I, I can really tell that you really like what you do. Is there anything in particular that makes you skip to work? I, I do love what I do. Um, you know, I really work with some very unique, very intelligent brokers who specialize in international as well. So we're constantly learning from each other. I, I don't think, you know, I've been doing this uh, out of college almost 10 years, and there's never been a day that... I'm like, oh, I know it all. That will never happen. Something is always changing, which is what I love, uh, you know, whether it's local insurance laws in Zambia to, uh, you know, it sounds sad to say, but all the new terrorist attack, there's so much changing in the insurance industry and, and the world at such a rapid pace that there's always something new. Uh, I never work on, you know, I may work on some risks that are similar, but it's never the same type of thing twice. So international is, it's, it's a great place to be if you want to be challenged every day and you want to have something interesting that you could talk about at dinner parties all the time. Yeah, I bet. It, well, that was what uh, I think precipitated this particular recording because of our conversation uh, in Philly. Uh, it, was, uh, it was engaging in that I could, I could sense your enthusiasm but also because the material is just so interesting. It just seems like it's uh, overwhelmingly interested um, in the way that you described it. So if, if a young professional or someone from InsureTech is interested in this particular field, how would they learn more about it? Uh, if you're still in college, 
if you go to a university that has any sort of international class, especially if dealing in international risk management, that would be a great place to start. Um, if your college doesn't have, say, a class in international risk management, I would suggest maybe considering a double major in risk management insurance and international relations or international business or some sort of you know international tie would certainly help you stand out from the crowd if you're interviewing. Another thing is to network with people who are currently in this industry. Believe it or not, the number of international underwriters that are specialized in what I do throughout the U.S. is very small, and we all kind of know each other somewhat. Most of us started out at ACE or AIG at some point and have kind of moved within. Of the international carriers out there, you know, the real ones who can actually place a large international coverage in all those countries is really us, ACE Chubb, and kind of Zorik. Uh, you know, CNA has some international capabilities. There's a few other new entrants like Generali um, and, and a few others who are kind of getting into the international market. So you could start out at one of those and work your way up or just network within the marketplace and, and see who you know. The, the hubs, if you will, there's large offices typically for international in Philadelphia, Atlanta, New York, Boston, Chicago, LA, um, usually in Houston or somewhere in Texas, but typically Houston because of the oil and gas market there. So if you're in or near one of those cities, also Seattle, uh, there's good odds are good that there are some international underwriters there who would be more than happy to take you to lunch and tell you about what they do. I've taken a bunch of CPCU classes and CIC classes. I've never delved into a topic that's as broad and as complicated as this. Are there any um, uh, professional organizations or designations? Uh, I don't know of any formal international designations. Um, I do follow ARMIA, the International Risk Management, I think it says for associates. I, I have to look up what that is. I do get their emails and they do have some interesting stuff. Um, it's, it's, I personally have started the CPCU process but haven't really done too many of the exams because I have been traveling and doing so much with this, but I need to get back on that. So really, it doesn't need to be international specific to be enriching to your career. I, you know, I highly recommend getting involved with your local CPCU or RIMS organization. RIMS is great because they do have a big international focus as well. So you know, if you can get involved with your local RIMS chapter, that would be a great place to start as well. Okay, I will put I will put both of those on the show notes for people that are listening, so they can uh, quickly link over to uh, to that. Um, Chelsea, so the the recent CAT events that have occurred uh, in the Caribbean, um, but also the earthquakes in Mexico, how how do how do natural catastrophes affect your your business and how you underwrite risk? Well, we definitely take a look at where a risk is located, and especially this comes into play on the property lines of business. So typically my policy, we will either exclude catastrophes or we'll give sublimits. So if they've got 50 million location, I'm not going to write 50 million of CAT. That's going to wipe us out because we are a smaller premium division. So typically I'm sublimiting your CAT catastrophe coverages to um, maybe a million. And then we're going to have a 5% deductible with a minimum of, say, 250000 as a deductible. So we do protect ourselves with deductibles or SIRs, uh, which is a self-insured retention, uh, and sublimits as a way to do that. We are, if, if they are a heavy cat zone, heavy property market, they've got large values, they really need a standalone property 
program that's international with our property team. I'm really more for, they've got a few offices overseas, they've got a couple warehouses, not a huge multinational company. Now, do we get slammed with those losses? Of course. Um, back when Hurricane Matthew hit Haiti, unfortunately, I had just written an account and increased their wind limit from 200,000 to a million right before the hurricane. So it was great for them because they actually ended up having more coverage. Uh, thankfully, the loss was only around 130,000. So it wasn't that bad, uh, all things considered. But we did help them rebuild quickly and get everything taken care of for them. So it's, it is important. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the people I deal with in the Caribbean and, and like Latin American countries where these disasters hit, they are nonprofits. They're these companies that just can't afford the coverages that they need. So being able to at least give them a small sublimit, it's better than nothing and at least is, is helping them rebuild and keep doing the good work that they're doing for, for these charities. I, w- I would suspect that the the quote unquote riskiest countries uh, to, to kind of manage would be the ones that have both the combination of potential natural catastrophe, but also, um, you know, just the governmental or society, societal um, uh, cultures where, where kidnapping is much more likely to occur or, or things of that nature. Would I, would I, would I be on the right path thinking that way? Yeah. Yeah. Funny enough, kidnapping is not a huge concern to us. Yeah. It happens and it's unfortunate, but you're way more likely to say um, get malaria or get uh, leishmania or any of the other diseases that are occur in certain locales than you are to get kidnapped. Like you're, you're way more likely to get a waterborne illness or uh, you know, a hepatitis, Hepatitis A from poor food preparation, for example, when traveling, than you are to get kidnapped. So a lot of people view the extremes as the the scenarios we underwrite for, but most of the time I'm actually looking more at uh, history in a certain country. Okay, I've had a ton of leishmania claims recently in this country. Maybe we want to take some risk management precautions, make sure these people are you know, not hanging around sand fleas all day with what they're doing, for example. So uh, they are risky. We do have limitations built into our form for certain flood zones, of course, certain earthquake zones. You know, Japan's really terrible, for example. Uh, Netherlands is really terrible for flooding. So we do have some sublimits that are automatically built into our forms as well, which will kind of help protect us a bit. So let's rewind the tape all the way back to uh, Chelsea as a high school student. Uh, what what enticed you to get into actuarial science? and And was it was it strictly, did you know that it was going to bring you directly into insurance or, uh, or were you looking at other potential vocations for that actual actuarial science degree? Sure. Um, well, when I was in high school, I was a band geek. Uh, I was in the marching band. I was the drum major and I was in the drum line and I'm a classical pianist. So I thought I was going to go to music school and uh, I'd applied and, and tried out for a bunch of schools, got into some of the big music schools. And then my parents sat me down and said, you know, you can do whatever you want. You, you are more than welcome to major in whatever you want. But keep in mind that when you graduate, you're not moving home. You need to be out on your own. You need to be paying your bills. And if you think you can do that with a music degree, great. If not, then maybe look into other avenues. So I, I started, a, you know, kind of an eye-opening conversation, like, wow, I, it's going to be a tough life as a musician. So uh, I started asking around, and my, actually my high school calculus teacher 
used to always bring in newspapers and articles about careers and constantly on the you know, New York Times and careerbuilder.com list, actuary was always ranked as the number one or number two career in terms of high pay, low stress, you know, just an overall great job. It's always been one of the top listed careers. And he pulled me aside after class one day and said, you know, I think you should really consider actuarial science. It's a great a great career. You're, you have an aptitude for math and you're social, which is uh, not as many actuaries may be. That's kind of the stereotype. So if you can break down those barriers, I think you would do really well. So I, uh, I took a look around at some universities and realized that I really liked Temple and they had one of the best programs in the country. So I ended up applying to Temple and declaring a major of actuarial science and from there on it went. Um, I did expect to go into insurance. Uh, I originally, when I thought I would be an actuary, thought I would be a consulting actuary because I do enjoy the social aspect, you know, being able to explain a complex term or uh, a complex idea into simple to understand forms for our client. Uh, that's something I was interested in until I realized that I hated the exams. So <laughs> what I do now I get the best of both worlds. I get the social marketing aspect, but I also get to come up with my own pricing. So it, it kind of worked out. What's the difference? Can you describe the difference between the exams and the degree? I would think, sure. that, I would think that they would be so much overlap there that the degree itself would more than thoroughly prepare you for the exams. Oh, it absolutely does. So all of our books that we learned from were the books that the exam recommends that you take for the exam. So our probability class directly prepared you for exam P. Uh, and the uh, the financial modeling course, I think they've changed the names now. When I was in college, it was exam P and exam FM. I think they're exam one and two now. But uh, they definitely prepare you for it. Uh, what I wasn't prepared for, the way to pass is you need to basically stay in your house for three or four months and do nothing but math problems all day and just study, study, study. They recommend 3,000 hours of studying to pass one exam, and I just couldn't do it. Uh, I can't stay in my house. I can't not talk to people. I was miserable. I failed the first exam twice by one question each time about, so I was... Uh, after that, I, I realized this was not for me. I knew I would have to do this and stay in and study for another 10 years, and that's not the path I wanted for my life. So I, I made a change, and I'm glad I did. Yeah, well, you're not alone. Uh, the, a podcast we just released with David Wright, who's a reinsurance broker, broker, and now um, he's accredited or whatever the designation is for actuarial science. Uh, he took the exam, and we went in-depth talking about how grueling those exams were and how um, he had failed one particular exam several times. And uh, this final time that he took the exam, this was it. This was going to be the last time he was going to take it. Um, he passed and he started sobbing at the computer terminal. Oh um, yeah. I, so, I, I had that reaction except it was when I failed every time. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was like, this is terrible. Yeah. And you know, I think for those that are listening, I've, come across a lot of folks that uh, decided not to go through the route uh, exactly as you did. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not necessarily that you couldn't have done it. It's just that you, you purposely chose for your skill set something, uh, something that was a better fit um, and that would give you, um, you know, a better fulfillment in your career. Uh, it, it sounds as though that that was the ultimate decision that you made, that it was like, okay, you know, Taking those exams is for one group of people that have a certain uh, mindset, but I have a different mindset, so I'm going in a different direction. 
Yeah, and I'm not saying at all that people who are social and who need to, you know, go out a lot more can't pass the exams. They certainly can. They just have better willpower than I do. <laughs> and if you have that skill set, if you're you have a strong math aptitude, if you can pass the actuarial exams and be social, you know, be able to explain these complex ideas in a simple to understand way, and are comfortable with public speaking, you can be a millionaire as an actuary. I would highly recommend if you're able to do that to go that path because you will kill it. Yeah. And I think even, even for those folks that um, want to really excel in insurance, even if you don't pass uh, you, it's an incredible um, uh, skill set to learn. You know, you, you don't necessarily have to pass the exam. I wish, I wish there was a designation or some kind of study course for uh, studying actuarial science without having to go through the grueling exams. Do you know if, do you know if there's anything like that? Well, are, there are some of the CPCU exams do gear towards, say, statistics, and I believe there's some financial modeling related to that. So there's like a mini course as one of the CPCU exams. Um, you could certainly take a course in actuarial science without having to major in it or without having to... Uh, you know, get your degree in that. Uh, the probability class, if, if you just are interested in statistics, is a, uh, the teacher at Temple, Dr. Krupa Viswanathan, is fantastic. Best teacher I've ever had in my life in terms of actuarial. She's amazing. And it's fun and it's interesting. Our first homework assignment ever was to calculate the odds of every hand of blackjack. So, you know, it's it's applicable to real life and it's interesting. And it's it's something that you can, there's probably classes for it online. I mean, you could probably take a Temple Online course or one other university, so uh, definitely look into that. I, I was just gonna, I was just going to ask you that. I will look into that and put that on the show notes because it actually sounds interesting, and I can tell uh, the, the audience just from personal experience that if you're going to get into insurance, you have to have some rudimentary understanding of probability um, because we're dealing with risk every day. So the idea is that things that are more risky should have higher premiums than things that are less risky. So I think it's uh, would be quite valuable to everyone to have at least a rudimentary understanding of probability. Um, could you, what, what advice would you give to your younger self? So uh, Chelsea Thorpe, that's at Temple University, uh, you know, if you could pick up a, a back to the future phone and call her, what kind of advice would you give her? Oh, I would probably say to just go easier on yourself. You know, it doesn't make you a failure if you decide to change your path. And this goes for anyone, not just Chelsea. Uh, if you get partway through a major, partway through a class and realize this isn't for me, I, I want the other side of the coin, that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you should follow your heart in a practical way. I'm not one of those people who says, you can do anything follow your dreams. You should never work a day in your life if you do what you love. That's just not true and it's just not practical. What you should do is find something that interests you to a level that you want to go to work today. And if you have other passions, for example, my classical music, make enough money at your job that you can follow those passions on the side. That's great advice. Um, for someone that's uh, younger or someone that's like an insure tech, you know, they're coming from a different area and they want we live in a very impatient society. Everybody wants what they want now. So if you were going to say, uh, do a crash course in, in insurance and get, you know, um, have someone get up to speed as quickly as possible. 
what kind of what kind of advice would you give for materials and and studying um, or even hands-on experience? So, what would be a a way that you would advise someone that wants to get into insurance to be able to get up to speed quickly? Uh, I mean, the first CPCU book is kind of like an intro to risk management. So I think that that's a good book for someone who has no familiarity at all with insurance, you know, how deductible works, the different lines of coverage. Um, If you already have a little experience, especially if you're working for any sort of insurance company, shadowing an underwriter is the quickest way. Uh, My intern this summer had no insurance experience at all. She was an accounting major. So I did a kind of an international insurance 101 with her for a day or two, and we just kind of went through the different coverages and what they meant, what kind of claims occurred in each coverage and how to rate for them. And then, you know, by the second week, she was quoting and binding business with me. So she, if she can learn as an accounting major with no insurance experience, really anyone can learn. It's just finding someone who will sit with you and mentor you and teach you patiently uh, for a couple of days and then you can kind of get the hang of it. The, the real way to do it is, is to just do it hands-on. Take a risk, dig through it, come up with what your thoughts are and then bounce it off an underwriter who handles that risk and kind of see if you came up with the same thing and then learn from, from what you came up with. Yeah, I, I would suspect that your intern had a really good teacher. I, I, I like to think so. You know, we had two interns last two summers ago and one works on my team now. He's fantastic. And the other, she's from New York. So she works in our New York office. And then my other intern, who is also named Chelsea, funny enough, from this summer, she is joining us again at the end of next summer when she graduates college. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so personally, um, how do, you're, you're dealing with uh, really complicated things and uh, I'm curious as to how you stay productive and how you stay organized. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, a lot of spreadsheets, <laughs> you know, I take a look at, I, I, I am the old school, write out my to-do list with a checkbox on a piece of paper at my desk. If I have a few things I really need to get done today and, and just prioritize, uh, you know, right before this call, I'm working on an account that's in 32 countries and the due dates in a few days. So I'm you know, following up with Russia, following up with Belarus and with Ukraine and everywhere I need to get some policies from and just break it down in pieces and do what you can do and, and know that there's only so much you can do in a day. You know, there's, there's people I talk to at work who, you know, work late into the night and they have nightmares about work. And I'm like, no way. Nobody pays me enough to interrupt my dreams with work. <laughs> Not going to happen. So, uh, you know, just kind of breaking things down into smaller tasks and doing what I can do and coming back to what I can't. Well, how, how vigilant are you with your calendar? Oh my gosh, very. Uh, if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist. So I travel a lot for work. I'm kind of our market-facing person. So I'm with the broker most days of the week. So actually today's my only day in the office. Tomorrow I'm in DC. Wednesday I'm in Harrisburg. Thursday I'm around the Philadelphia area. And Friday I have a broker's soccer event. So I'll be playing some indoor soccer. Uh, so it's definitely important to be organized with the calendar. Uh, my husband and I have a shared calendar for our personal lives and he can also see where I am when I'll be home. So a uh, calendar is a must. I have everything in there from my friend's wedding anniversaries to, uh, you know, an idea for movie night or something. And every call, every follow up I put in the calendar. Are there any uh, digital calendars that you use or do you just use the traditional, you know, Google? I use the Apple calendar, or my Outlook calendar in, in my uh, in my Outlook. There's probably a better way, but that's, that's what I use right. for now since I can share it with my husband. One thing I really love as a digital tool, but it's not calendar related, um, is Dashlane. 
that's what I use for my password storage. Um, there's one master password or your thumbprint to access, and then you can store your passwords, your IDs, um, your credit card info, that kind of stuff, and it's only accessible by you. My husband and I have a shared account, so when I need to look up what his frequent flyer number is when I'm booking our travel, we can both access it. Um, another thing I love, love, love if you travel a lot is TripIt. You can forward any of your itineraries to your personal TripIt it's plans at tripit.com, but it recognizes your email address and it's a smart reader, if you will. So it figures out what the record locator is, the number, address, everything, and puts it all in one place for you. So when I'm traveling with, you know, 15 business trips and a couple personal vacations and all that stuff, everything's in my tripit so I can see it in one place when I need the confirmation number for my rental car or something. I will put those in the show notes. I am also a big fan of Dashlane uh, for anyone that's listening. Um, I especially like when uh, Dashlane warns me that there's been some kind of hacking um, in, you know, at a site where I have a username and password. So it, uh, it reminds me that I should immediately go in and change my username and password. And, and uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they have this really cool feature where uh, for particular sites, you can just push a button and it will automatically go to those sites and update your username and give you a new password. So it'll yep, go. It's it'll great. Go. I love, I love Dashlane. Yeah. So you don't have to go site by site. It, you can do, you can change all of the passwords where they have access to the site um, through, through their software. So that's great. So I'll put those in the, in the show notes. And I was uh, also curious, this is my final question for you, and I, I would like to start asking this of more, um, more of the guests that come on the show, which is, uh, Kate, what's an influential book? What book did you read or books did you read um, as you were building your career that were just in, uh, incredibly influential uh, to who you are as a business professional? Absolutely. Um, the one I recommend to everyone, and I read it myself probably every other month just to remind myself, is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Um, I'm sure a lot of people mention that book. It's a common one. It's it's a little dated in some ways, but the and and it's a lot of common sense advice, but all in one place. You know, remembering people's names, following up, not just calling people when you want something. Just just the little things are, I think, personally, what have and what some of my brokers and also competitors have told me have given me the edge. You know, for, uh, a good example is last year I was at a dinner and I was with two brokers and they were having an argument, a friendly argument, because one refused to buy Girl Scout cookies from the other's daughter. And because in his mind and, and in truth, there are two different bakeries, I don't know if you know this, of Girl Scout cookies. And some feed to some states and some feed to others and they really do look different and according to him they taste very different so for example Samoa's and Caramel Delights are the same in theory cookie but they're made by two different bakeries and they're made by two different companies and they taste and look different so he will not buy from this girl's daughter because she sells cookies in Pennsylvania and he likes the Jersey cookies so I remembered this and we had a meeting with them about six months later and I had bought the Girl Scout Samoa cupcake mix and I made the uh, Samoa cupcakes for our meeting and they loved it and we're actually doing a broker event when Girl Scout cookies come out where I'm going to do with them do a blind taste test between the two states and see if he really can tell the difference and if he can't then he needs to buy cookies from from her from now on so you know little things like that just yeah. engage your brokers and 
tell them that you're listening and you remember. Same for remembering, you know, people's children and remembering this one has a dog. You know, little things like that are, are what build relationships. So that book is really helpful. Um, for the young people starting out, I really look uh, like this book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. I believe it's by um, Ramit Sethi or it's, it's a name. I have to look it up. But it's just a really simple couple steps for personal finance, you know, getting yourself set up. A lot of people get into the credit card trap. Um, they get into the juggling their bills trap. It's, it's a really simple, easy to use personal finance book where you do one chapter at a time and just kind of get yourself organized. Uh, I love it. My credit score is over 800 because I've used this book to get organized. Um, you know, I have a great mortgage rate because I have such a good credit rate and, and uh, pay all my bills on time. And I have two separate checking accounts, one for my play money and one for all of my bills. Therefore, all of the bills are paid out of here before I even any money goes to my personal account. And I never feel like I'm missing it. Never paid a bill late in almost 10 years. So highly recommend to any young people to pick up that book as well. I, I will put both on the on the show notes, and uh, I, I'm smi- I was smiling as you were just describing that because uh, I don't I don't know if it was the book. I, I I have a feeling it was just your personality and who you are and what you do for a living that you really understand uh, risk and what it means to have a good credit score. So I, I bet a lot of it is just uh, you just have that uh, you just have that risk averse personality. Oh, I, I, well, I got this book because I got into some trouble in college with credit cards. Not too bad, but I kind of viewed it as free money. I have to pay off later or whatever, not realizing just how high the interest rates were until I got my first internship and was like, oh my gosh, I have $1,500 of credit card debt and I'm not making that much money to pay it off. What am I going to do? And just kind of got organized and got a plan to, to pay that off and you know make sure you're not getting your electricity shut off if you don't pay the bill. So it, it's a great way to get organized. So I, I, I'm hoping the audience got a really good flavor of, um, you know, foreign casualty and foreign property and international risk and, um, and also, you know, uh, uh, from, from the ground up what it takes um, to build a career. So my guest this week has been Chelsea Thorpe of AIG. Chelsea, thank you so much for being on Profiles in Risk. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and anyone who has any questions about risk management, I'll make sure that my uh, you know, work email is included so anyone who has questions can email me. We'll put those in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you.